Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hi, even though the, the name in the left-hand corner says uh, Vicki Matson, um, my name is actually Kevin Matson. Um, I'm the author of a, a recent book uh, entitled, We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America. And I'm proud to be accompanied by uh, Michael Foley. Um, Mike, do you want to say anything about your own background or anything along those lines? Um, sure, my background is similar to yours. I, um, I'm a punk rock historian too, of sorts. Uh, I wrote a 33 and a third book on Dead Kennedy's first record and I'm, I'm working or supposedly working on a bigger book about San Francisco <laughs> punk politics, uh, which will be coming your way, you know. I'm going to I'm going to hold your feet. Soon. I'm going to hold your feet to the fire, man. That that <laughs> okay. baby that baby's got to come out. Um, <laughs> it will. Cool. So, um, I guess to to follow format, um, I'm supposed to do a little bit of reading from the book. I guess to give you a little flavor of of, of the book. Um, and so I will give a very brief reading that's predominantly just the the starting sections of the book. And then we're going to turn this into uh, a conversation uh, in which we can address things like, you know, what's it mean to research punk? What's that look like? What are the challenges? Um, what are the benefits? And things like that. So again, this is from the the book. We're not here to entertain. And I'm open. I'm just going to uh, read from the opening preface here. After the blast, Kurt Cobain's body slumped. Next to his corpse lay a piece of paper in his last words. At the time the bullet seared his head, Cobain was a rock star. His grizzled face graced the covers of slick music industry magazines. His songs received mainstream radio play. His band Nirvana performed in huge arenas. But he had been thinking an awful lot about what he called the punk rock world that saved his life during his teen years and that he had subsequently abandoned for stardom. He first encountered this world in the summer of 1983 at a free show the Melvins held in a Thriftway parking lot. After hearing the guttural sounds and watching kids dance by slamming against one another, he ran home and wrote in his journal, this was what I was looking for, and he underlined that twice. As he dove into this world, he recognized its blistering music played in odd venues, but also a wide array of creativity like self-made zines, poetry, fiction, movies, artwork on flyers and record jackets, and even politics. This too, how all these things opened up spaces for ideas and arguments. Now in his suicide note, he reflected on his quote, Punk Rock 101 courses, where he learned his quote, ethics involved with independence and the embracement of your community. There are people who can recount where they were when Cobain's suicide became news. I was in Ithaca, New York, finishing up my dissertation, but my mind immediately hurled backward to growing up in Washington, D.C.'s metropolitan area, which is really just a euphemism for suburban sprawl. 
I started to remember the first time I entered this punk rock world around a year or two before Cobain went to the Thriftway parking lot. I opened the doors of the Chancery, a small club in Washington, D.C., and saw a tiny little stage, maybe a foot and a half off the ground. And then suddenly a small kid about my age, 15, his hair bleached into a shade of white that glowed in the lights, jumped up. I remember it being brighter than expected, unlike my earlier wee boy experiences in dark and cavernous arenas where bands like Kiss would play to me and thousands of stoned audience members. This kid with the blonde hair might have said something I don't remember. What I recall is that his band broke into the fastest, most vicious sounding music I had ever heard. Suddenly bodies started flailing through the air, young men mostly, propelling themselves off the ground into the space between one another, flailing their arms, skin smacking skin. Control was lost for when a body moved in one direction, another body collided into its path. When someone fell over, another would pick him up. The bodies got pushed onto the stage, making it hard to differentiate performer from audience member. At one point, at one moment, it appeared the singer had been tackled by a clump of kids and he seemed to smile. Sometimes I could even make out what the 15 year old was shouting, especially I'm going to make their society bleed. Overwhelmed, I rushed outside to clear my head. There I found some kid hawking a fanzine for pocket change. Xerox images ran alongside typewritten commentary or handwritten prose replete with scratching outs. My visual senses came unglued the way my oral senses had inside. It looked nothing like Newsweek, the slick magazine my mom subscribed to. This zinemeister explained that to me that he was an anarchist who believed in producing his own culture and means of communication. I thought to myself, I could do that, and soon I would with friends who were trying to make sense of this world opening up. Other kids from inside the club spilled out onto the sidewalk. Conversations ensued. Most of these raggedy-looking kids came from what were called broken homes, a byproduct of the skyrocketing divorce rate that defined the 70s me decade and that played its course out during the 1980s. I noted ambivalence about parents matched with a hatred of high school life, especially boring teachers and stupid bullies. Sometimes they talk about a zine they had read or a book outside of school assignments. They per peruse something by Kurt Vonnegut or George Orwell or Algis Huxley. They talk about how the stoners and beer guzzlers at their school were so bombed out that they became automatons. One kid bragged about how he had spray painted too stupid for drugs close to where the stoners hung out at his school. All of them came off as, well, pretty smart, but also funny not dour or overly serious. They dissed the trendy new wave and new romanticist mu music that entertainment corporations pushed. Instead of listening to that, they'd go into their basements to rehearse for shows at places like the Chancery, or maybe sh share their music on a cassette tape, or maybe even press their own record. Pretty soon I had my own band that did this. Our first show was held in the basement of a suburban house. It felt like we were creating our own culture. And I think I'll leave it at that because that is where the memory then shifts into, um, hopefully, some, idealistically, some history. So um, there we have it. Mike, do you want to, do you have anything to, to say about the? Uh, about your introduction that you just read or, or about, about any, anything? Yeah. yeah, I mean, as you know, I've read, I've um, read your book a couple of times. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled, you know, that we've reached a point where we're having even Zoom casts about it. Um, because, and this is one thing I wanted to ask you about, is it seems to me that we're, we've been waiting a long time for a book like yours, uh, at least among Americanists, right? That, like when I taught in England some years ago, there were, it wasn't difficult to find scholars working on kind of subcultural stuff and working on, on histories of punk. And within, within the academy in the UK, you know, there was a kind of legitimacy to studying punk. But I wonder if you see a difference between, like, why is it that we haven't had 
as many studies on American punk as we've had on British punk. Like you probably know that Matthew Worley book, yeah, um, No Future, right? Like he he worked on that for quite a while, but I think he also he got a huge fellowship, you know, uh, Leverhulm Fellowship or something like that. That I I felt like at the time when I heard about that, that that would be really hard to pull off in the United States. It'd be really <laughs> hard to get like the National Endowment for the Humanities to give you, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars to work on American punk. You know, is is that your feeling too? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think that things have been changing. I think one of the things, I, I always say that the, the origin point for me to write the book was when I was in graduate uh, school back in 1990. I went up to my advisor, Christopher Lash, and I said, you know, I think I'd like to write a dissertation about how punk rock is the social criticism, um, major social criticism of the 1980s. And he turned to me and he said, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> and I think I think his warning was multifaceted, um, right. but but you know of course the 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 best reason for me not to have written the book back then was I didn't have enough distance, and right. you know I think distance provides us with the capacity to get a better handle on our judgments, um, or it should I guess I should say. Um, so I think that sometimes it's just a matter of time passing before we can really get a a better assessment of of the overall you know features of punk. But I guess the other thing, and I think you've seen this yourself, is that, you know, if, since 1990 up to now, there's been a massive opening of archives. Um, so yeah. though, though I don't think you can necessarily try to get a fellowship off of doing research into punk, the available sources are, uh, you know, almost overwhelming at this point in time in terms of what, what you would, you know, build scholarship on. So, I mean, I think with, the, with those changes, it, it, just, it just made sense. It, it, it always nagged at me that I wanted to write this book. And, and mm -hmm. you know, just with the time passed, with the archives that were accessible, it, it, you know, it kind of, I guess, so to, so to speak, panned out. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think all of that's evident in the book. You know, the, the, um, the sense that I get you know, from having read your past work too, right? Is that this is still, even though it it's different because it's about punk than say about, you know, presidential politics or political, more mainstream political culture, right? That I can't, it would be hard for me to imagine you having written it without having done some of those, those projects first. Um, Good point. And then, and then secondly, as you say, this, this, archival development's really fascinating. I was at a conference a few years ago where I gave a talk because it was about archiving punk at the University of Massachusetts. And we had this whole conversation about how, like how punk is it actually <laughs> to have an archive, you know? And there were people, people who were there, I, who I won't name, who, you know, were very uh, dismissive of the idea of having like formal archives and very distrustful of librarians, you know, almost like conspiratorially. Whereas I was saying, look, you know, I've done projects in the past where, uh, you know, these people were pulling out papers from organizations that they worked with in the 1960s that they'd kept, you know, in their attics and basements under their beds, you know, for 30 or 40 years and turned out to be gold mines of information that I would never have had if they hadn't kept it under their beds. But I sure as hell would have preferred it if they had deposited it in an archive where it would be protected from, you know, fire, flood and infestation or whatever else might, you know, affect your 
your home, your home archive, you know? And it would be accessible. Exactly. It'd be accessible to everybody instead of just to, you know, the privileged few who happen right. to know the person who's holding on to it. Yeah. So, but the thing that I was going to ask you about yours, that, like for me working on San Francisco, you know, I've been lucky in the same way um, with regard to archives, but, and, and that there's a kind of curated archive de being developed at the San Francisco Public Library. And that makes it really manageable for me, but for you doing the whole country, you know, how, how manageable was it? Like, it seems to me that uh, you have to, I know these archives and like the quality of material that you can find in them varies oh, yeah. significantly, right? And it's particularly where you're so good at writing like a kind of intellectual history. You know, you have some really brilliant thinkers and writers in some of the materials you used. But then there's a lot of other stuff that's, you know, not as valuable, I guess. Well, you know, I think that that's a great question. I think that the fact that one of the highest ethics, if, if I can use that word in, in light of, of talking about punk, one of the highest ethics, I think, is the ethic of communication and communicating with one another. And I think the building of a kind of network, both for hosting bands that were out of town to put on shows, for creating zines that were then traded, you know, nationally, um, usually very often using a kind of potlatch approach, meaning you didn't charge anybody anything, you just right. did equal trading. Um, you know, because you had that sort of national network and I think a consciousness about it growing up, it meant that when you hit one archive, it was very likely that you were basically getting almost like five or six in addition to that, because right. that person was saving stuff that was that he or she was being shipped from, you know, Los Angeles or San Francisco or, or Tulsa or Lawrence or, you know, whatever town it was. And so in some ways, it was very easy to kind of get at um, areas that you didn't even necessarily have to visit because the papers were already there in some other form in, in some other archive. So I think that, and I took that as a sign that, you know, there, it felt like as I, I saw a lot of kind of repeat zines and things that I had run into before that I realized, oh yeah, there was a lot of trading, a lot of communication going on, which is, you know, something that both made it easier to do the research, but at the same time, I think made it, um, you know, was a part of like what the, this movement was all about, which was sharing, yeah. discussing, exchanging ideas um, about music, art, poetry, and, you know, in, and very much so politics, which were so heightened during the Reagan years. So I think I, I benefited from the fact that, you know, a lot of these archive, the people who, I call them basically, you know, pack rats that, you know, just basically shoved papers into folders with something of a consciousness that something was going on, that right. maybe someday, you know, further down the road, eh, you know, that, well, I'll come back to this and see what, what made it significant or what, what made it insignificant. And so, you know, I think that the, the the fact that it was such a nationally based movement um, with lots of local decentralized areas participating made it easier to research. And, and one of the things I definitely did not want to do, and I know you do, you do much more oral history um, mm -hmm. than I do. You do a lot. You do very in-depth interviews because, because I've benefited from them in my mm -hmm. own research. But one of the things I swore to was that I would keep the, the interviews to a minimum because I think what's happened in a lot of punk history, and I think of like books like Please Kill Me, um, is it's totally reliant upon people reporting back on what they experienced, you know, 30 years ago, 
often through an incredible drug haze. Um, So, you know, the the likelihood that they're getting it right just seems to be so wrong to me. And so I always made it a rule that I would use, you know, a zine or a flyer or or an artwork at the time that it was released. rather than go to the artist and say, what did you mean when you, you know, you know, drew out this picture that showed X, Y, and Z? And I think that like made it both, I mean, I think that made it, I, I hope it made it more accurate, less based upon, you know, people trying to dig through their memory. And by the way, my own memory is awful. I'm not condemning other people for misremembering. I can't remember these things. Right. I did the research and I'd be like, oh my God, I didn't know that that happened before this happened. Um, you know, and so I, so I think it, it, in some ways, I benefited from the fact that these collectors and pack rats, whatever you want to call them, kind of were somewhat aware that something was going on nationally that they couldn't even necessarily see with their own eyes. But that, um, you know, because communication was so central to the movement, um, it made it, I think, easy to find documents um, that, that, you know, it, I was actually surprised how much I did find. But you're absolutely right, too. The quality of that was from the very, very, you know, sophisticated, interesting to the very, very kind of, you know, adolescent angst of, you know, freaking out about Ronald Reagan blowing up the world type of stuff, which is, you know, legit, but, but not necessarily (laughs) as interesting. Right. Right. I know that's really interesting. I think, uh, like, as you were talking about the way that you were finding these materials all over the country, it's, it's weirdly reminiscent of like, those studies of the history of the book in early America, you know, kind of like the distribution of knowledge. You could, somebody ought to do that actually, ought to, ought to try to map out kind of these distribution chains in American punk, you know, because you, you know, from Vail in San Francisco and doing search and destroy that he, he managed to get that zine, which they didn't, I forget the number of copies they printed each time, but it wasn't an enormous number, got it as far as London you know, yeah. it's where you could pick it up at Rough Trade Records in London and people were following what was happening, not only in San Francisco and California, but around the world. And that's pretty impressive, you know, given the, the, the way the technology of information distribution functioned at the time, you know, um, they're doing a lot of this just by hand, truly. Yeah. And so. Yeah. I mean, the, the equivalent for my period of time, and in some ways, some people would say that, you know, Search and Destroy kind of trans, transforms into a bunch of different publications. But the one that's probably got the longest lasting uh, effect is Maximum Rock and Roll, who were doing right. most to document all these independent scenes that were out there. And it was still done. It was, a you know, a magazine done truly collectively, um, uh, you know, in, in the house of uh, Tim Yohannan's, uh, you know, in, in Oakland. So, I mean, yeah, I think you're, I, you could trace out a network. It would be fun to do that sort of, you know, see where one thing w- went and, you know, who was getting what and stuff like that. I think, I think that would tell you about, I mean, my, my, my argument is that this was much more widespread than people think it was. Um, right. Much more widespread than the 1960s counterculture in terms of, you know, it was not a coastal, um, you know, thing any longer as punk was originally, I think. But it was right. something that was, you know, in the Midwest, in the Southwest, and even, the, even in the South. I mean, Florida had a ton of stuff going on, which is, you know, kind of remarkable when you think about what that state, you know, predominantly stands for um, up to today. Right, right, right. Yeah, so why, I mean, I completely agree with you, as you know, um, about how widespread it was and how important uh, punk was and punk political culture. But one obvious question 
is if that's the case, then why is it that, you know, most of the major histories of the period after the 60s are dominated by the same kind of tired narrative about the rise of the right and the decline of liberalism? Like, why is it that we don't have more complexity in understanding, you know, what happens after in the 1970s and beyond, uh, beyond, you know, electoral politics? Because it seems like, you know, with the latest, uh, you know, age of Reagan books is, is what they all are, right? So it is all kind of defining the last 35 years of the century as the age of Reagan, um, which I can't believe we're still doing. <laughs> <laughs> but we are. But we are, yeah. I mean, as, you, as you've assembled in a, in a hefty book, you know, there's plenty of evidence to the contrary um, at the grassroots level. Yeah, and, and why that why that hasn't really, you know, rung through, I think in large part is because many historians are listening to those negative treatments of punk that were out there throughout the 1980s. So you had, you know, Parents of Punkers by, uh, by Serena Dank. Um, you had these movies like Class of 1984 that showed punks as like not just um, juvenile delinquents, but rapists. There's, you know, they, they rape the, the, the high school teacher's pregnant wife, you know, in, in like a gang rape and stuff like that. You know, all these sorts of things that we know a lot of punks were into. Or like in Chips, um, the motorcycle uh, television series that was popular during the 1980s, um, you know, the, 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 the punks in it are just, you know, completely stupid and violent. And there's the ultimate one, which is Quincy, which was um, a TV show right. about a medical examiner who basically discovers that, oh, you know, uh, he, he, there's a murder at a punk club and he goes and he decides, you know, he's proven that, you know, punk rock music causes people to kill one another. <laughs> you know, right. And I think you take that sort of stuff. And I, I mean, you know, and, and one of the things I like to do in the book is like to, you know, show these kids who are like trying to like say, this is just so bogus, right? The treatment right, we're right. getting is just so off and it makes no sense. But I think that that carries out into, uh, you know, our contemporary world of research, because I think, you, you know, if you just take that at its face, it would seem that punk was just nothing but stupid, mindless violence, right? Which is a very, right. very typical, you know, stereotype of punk, even before the 1980s. It's just, you know, nihilism, it's just violence, it's just kids who have like no sense of future, blah, blah, blah. And, it, and I think that we kind of, unfortunately have kind of taken that stuff at its word and not like actually looked into it. And so one of the stories that I talk about is that, you know, um, Phil Donahue had a bunch of shows where he would interview punk kids and then he would line them up against like some of the most arch conservative, you know, suburbanite people. And, right. and they, you know, of course what happened, they got into a fight, you know, they started right. yelling at one another. And then this was used as a way to say, you know, oh, look at how, how nasty and, and uncouth these punk kids are. And, you know, but when, when you actually go back and listen to some of the stuff that was said on the show, I mean, a lot of these kids, you know, are, are basically saying things that are, are quite intelligent, you know, and critical of their right. society, but quite intelligent. So I think we, if we can re-remember some of those incidents where there's an attempt to kind of stereotype punks and kind of blow that apart, 
we can start to get at a better assessment of what punk was, but also at its significance. Um, and one of my last stories that I'll go into just because I think it's a, a hilarious and, and kind of often overlooked part of the book is that um, there's this one classic TV show in Los Angeles about these two parents who have these two punk kids and the parents are like crying because their kids are punks and stuff like that. <laughs> and the kids are like rolling their eyes and stuff. And at one point in time, the, the, the narrator's going, and you know, of course, punk rock has been linked up to violence violent behavior and stuff like that. They follow the kid into his bedroom and little do they know who he, he puts on a, a record. They don't realize that it's uh, the political punk band from England, Crass. And mm -hmm. he's listening to the song, fight war, not wars, fight war. And he's like chanting to it. And I'm like, yeah, there's your violence. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, but I think we stuck, we've, we've stayed with that because it's a simplistic, easy, um, to dismiss sort of way of, of writing a history of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's a big part of it. And I, I think there's too many historians who, when they start out writing about relatively recent history, still rely a little too much on the mainstream media as their primary sources, right? And so I think that's right. You wind up with all these caricatures from the time just being passed along. And it's a lot easier, obviously, to find archival sources in, you know, presidential libraries and things like that. But as you've shown, you know, there's considerable, uh, you know, voluminous archives now of punk um, and other kind of countercultural, subcultural stuff out there that's available. It's just, it's just not as commonly, you know, made use of, I guess, you know. Yeah, I think it's it's often overlooked. Or I think what also happens is that, you know, we treat this as a kind of, you know, we'll have one of many band histories, right? Where we have the list yeah. of bands, you know, um that and and or or band history, um, you know, which I think is 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 this sort of thing that like kind of silos rather than yeah. widens. And so you get this, you know, what did Tim eat for, you know, uh breakfast <laughs> today? And why was there this fight between the members and all that sort of stuff, some of which is interesting and some most of which is boring and you know right. it, but it, it just le it leads to this tendency to just kind of um drill down rather than try to get a wider perspective on things and i think in some ways that's i mean I, as much as i'm not necessarily touting the the american history profession um i think that you know it's it's that sort of ability to give some you know wider context wider sense of things that's necessary to explain the significance of punk because as you pointed out i mean there's 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 a fair amount of stuff out there but um most of it's pretty kind of i guess what i would call fan based um yeah. or you know just kind of band history that i don't find to be terribly um, interesting. So I think that, you know, my, my training as a historian, even though I, I'm, I, you know, I'm not always uh, sure that my training as a historian has been all that effective in terms of shaping who I am, but I think that it at least makes me want to look for a kind of wider context. Whereas I think that a lot of, you know, music journalists, people like that don't really do that all too terribly well. Right. Right. No, exactly. I've, I've, I've had the same kind of experience. Um, and I, I mean, you know, I've got, I was a little bit criticized in the 33 and a third book for not going into more detail on, you know, the day by day in the studio making of the album, you know, which I appreciate is really interesting to some people, but it's just not that interesting to me. Like, it's much more interesting to me to talk about the political context that, 
you know, created the circumstances in which this piece of art was made, you know, by these people who are political actors in the end, you know, they're not merely um, musicians, you know, um, they're political thinkers and actors in their own right. And, you know, and as you do in your book, you know, it's important to treat them as such so that we don't have these narratives that are dominated entirely by, you know, Ronald Reagan and Jerry Falwell and, you know, the, the Parents Music Resource Council and, you know, all those people from the 80s. Yeah, so. I mean, I mean, those people are in there, but they're kind of like, you know, seen through the veil of a, of a punk vision, so to speak, right? Um, and, and I think that that's, um, I mean, I think that these, there were a lot of kids who were, who kind of became politically aware out of their um, music activism, you know, they, they, they saw this as connected to a, a sort of politics um, uh, of, uh, you know, and I think, you know, usually this would result in them embracing anarchism as, as the, their kind of own political theory, um, which, you know, again, that's a classic thing, right? We're back to like this perception. What is anarchy for most people, right? It's chaos, right. it's violence, all and it's nihilism, blah, blah, blah. And yet, you know, you go back and you read these kids who are, you know, I think um, slightly too idealistic um, and are constantly, you know, discovering that, you know, they can't square their anarchism with their desire to be protected from the bullies and the rednecks who have guns in the back of their trucks sort of thing, you know? And so there's like this, they're always dealing with these sorts of tensions, but those are interesting and kind of creative tensions, right? And, and yeah. at the least they're not, I think the anarchism that, these, that a lot of these kids embrace means that they're not a part of the authoritarian left. Um, at the same time, they're um, not, uh, there's by no means, you know, what we would call conservatives. Although there's even shades of conservatives in some, in some of this sort of stuff where I think, especially especially when they criticize um, the culture industry and the marketing to youth, which I, was, a, mm. I think, a focus of a lot of these kids. You know, like, for instance, you know, the, the rise of the band, The Knack, um, which have, have these, you know, awful pedophile songs, basically, you know? And they were, <laughs> right. you know, the, the music corporations are, like, trying to push this stuff because they see it as the next big thing. And, you know, right. that just draws upon these punks to say, you know, this is gross. You know, this is like, you'll, you'll sell anything. And so you get kind of like a quasi-conservative thing mixed up with an anarchist thing mixed up with a and it's a it's a it's a weird kind of it's a weird politics it doesn't fit necessarily absolutely the left right you know categorization right. that we're used to yeah yeah no and i think that's a, to go back to the earlier point about you know why we don't see this uh, as much in these larger you know narrative histories of the period after the 60s that's part of it too right is that it's not it's not really as legible because because it's not as easy to categorize in our in our more commonly used political categories right like right what's left and right and what's liberal and what's conservative and then if it doesn't really fit in there then you know it gets it just gets left out i guess is, is what happens most of the time yeah know? that's right exactly i think you're right you know i mean there's this narrative that that um of the 80s that's really hard to you know push against um yeah and it's that you know narrative of the ascendancy of conservatism which you know again i mean we can't refute it um right. but you know there's the ascendancy of conservatism there's the you know the great savior of ronald reagan appearing upon the stage you know uh you know with a white horse um and you know i mean there's there's a lot and it's hard to like push back against that especially dealing especially if you're pushing back with something like punk to try to make your point 
Um, right. It's, 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 a, it's, it's quite a challenge. I mean, I think it's doable. I hope. Sure. I think it's got to be doable. Um, and I do think that, you know, in many ways, the way we remember that past tells us a lot about the way we orient ourselves to the present. I mean, you know, our history, I think, is bound up with, it, with our contemporary politics. And, um, you know, this book is in some ways uh, actually, surprisingly for me, more hopeful than I ever expected it to be. Um, but I think that's the the attempt to to remember the losers, the ones that we overlook, um, which I think is the kind is, you know it's a responsibility of historians to do that sort of stuff, right. rather than exactly. follow out the easy you know narrative of Reagan you know here comes yeah. Reagan you know liberalism's dead conservatism you know that sort of thing. Um, but you're absolutely right. A lot of that goes back to the fact that um, you know. The, we, we, we use these very easy treatments of punk and dismissals of punk from the past to then just basically build our own sense that it really didn't matter. Right, right. Which is all the way back to E.P. Thompson and the condescension of history, right? Or condescension exactly. of austerity, right? Like that's, yeah. that's the problem <laughs> as ever, right? And from the 60s, early 60s when he wrote that to, to the present. But I think like the, in terms of the, in terms of punk and not only punk, but you could say the same thing about hip hop and you could say it about lots of social movements in the 1980s, there's like considerable culture of opposition to, you know, this, this narrative of conservatism in the period. And, you know, as you point out in this book, like the enduring power of like do it yourself culture, right? That's, that's like never gonna go away. You know, that's like a thing that has been fully absorbed into our kind of consciousness, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a way of living in opposition to the prevailing norms, you know, and, and also kind of beyond categorization, I think. Yeah, you know, I was, so, a lot of people have been asking me, well, you know, is there still any remnant of this alive today? And, and <laughs> I, I remember thinking about that question, and I was out walking my dog, and there was a, a flyer up on a telephone pole, which was for a, a block gathering where people would bring their instruments out and play for one another, and, and also practice social distancing, and all these sorts of things. And I was like, you know, as much as those people doing the music probably don't think it, this is punk rock, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> right, this is DIY. Right. This is like create your own stuff. This is like share with one another. That All those types of elements that punk had kind of tried to perfect, you know, you could see in like a, a small little block party uh, in, in a town where, you know, neighbors just kind of came out and, you know, made music and kind of, you know, enjoyed one another's company, probably talked about things that, you know, weren't being talked about before. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think the spirit lives on, but I would also say, as you, as I'm sure you know, I would also say that there's a real specificity uh, of the years from about which the book covers about 1980 to 1985. Um, it's it's one of the key things to keep in mind is that you know the music industry is in just a complete tailspin, um, mm -hmm. especially from 79 to 83, and then you get Michael Jackson who saves the music industry. But right. like that that opening, the, I mean, the fact that the reason that I think that punk was seen as something of a threat was the fact that punk had picked up on the fact that the music industry was just going completely going nowhere and kind yeah. of like saw themselves creating a culture that was a, a part of a anti-corporate culture and um that 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 window gets closed um mm -hmm. and so you see a lot of kind of closing of windows as you know i mean for the most obvious one would be the re-election of ronald reagan because a lot of these kids worked on trying to get him out of the white house but then you know also you start seeing the rise in 1985 of this thing called alternative 
alternative rock or right. indie music, which especially you can tie into bands like Husker Du who are signing with the major corporate labels by 1985. So, I mean, I think that there's like, I mean, as much as I don't think you could ever say that the spirit of DIY died, I think that you can safely say that something about that spirit was transformed during this period of time. And I think it's become more difficult for people to find ways to, you know, create a counterculture that can really remain counter. You know, right, it's right. more and more difficult. Um, we have m many more choices. Um, we're, you know, we don't have the corporate crap stuff down our throat as much as we did during the 1980s. But on the other hand, you know, th there was there was an opportunity. I think that probably in some ways passed. Yeah. Yeah. And I hate saying, yeah, giving, and it, giving that news, but you know, it's like no, I know, I know, I but I feel similarly. I mean, I've got one adult child and you know two ones approaching adolescence and i think about it all the time because the the just the technological changes that have happened in their lifetimes that have created so many more diversions and distractions and it's a lot harder you know i'm, I'm sure punks didn't think about it in these terms at the time because why would you but you know they didn't have you know, you just barely had cable television for crying out loud. Right. You know, you, and there were lots of places in the country where you still had only three channels of television. That's right. Um, and so, you know, the, the kind of impetus to, to create your own culture was, you know, even greater, I think. Well, I think that, you know, I think that happens, especially when you get up to um, the story of Nirvana breaking through, right? Which is, right. you know, Kurt Cobain was asked when they broke, um, you know, what, what do you think about what's going on around you? And he said, you know, I really hope that like some kids like listen to us and realize that we come out of this punk rock world, um, you know, uh, but, uh, and, and go out and like find the records by the bands that, you know, were, were really truly independently produced or what have you. Um, and my retort to that is why would you bother doing that? It's being handed to you on a corporate platter, right? I mean, right, right. You know, that once you've broken it big, um, you know, or, you know, when punk breaks or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, it's, it's, it means that it becomes easier and easier and easier for the corporations to kind of, you know, grab from the bottom and then remarket that stuff. And it becomes more and more difficult to say that you can actually sustain some sort of true counterculture. Um, right. So right. I think that's another thing that that change, that change, I think really hits, you know, during the nineties. Yeah, exactly. The whole glorification of this thing called grunge, which I think in fact, in some ways is a total and utter myth. Right, right. No, the, the corporate co-optation remains, you know. I mean, even when you talk to the, to the, to the older punks from the 70s and 80s, they're, they're usually quite impassioned talking about that, that shift and when it happened, you know. It's like they're, they're, the bands that they were going to see in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, never got the kind of attention and respect. And of course, didn't make the money, you know. Um, which at the time, most of them would, would have said they weren't in it for the money. That's right. You know? <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, why should these other people who came along years later and, uh, you know, are making millions, why should they be getting all the cash, I guess? I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Well, Maybe I mean, that's part of, part of how the archives is involved now where you have people getting big paychecks to buy their archives. And I, I just, I mean, we, we kind of opened on that in our discussion. I mean, that, that to me is like one of the most worrisome things that I've seen is the commodification of archives. I I'd yeah. never, in my other areas of study, I've never run into that. But on, on this one, there were plenty of people, private collectors who just refused to, um, 
refused to share. Um, yeah. and, you know, they said, this is our property. And it's like, okay. And, and, you know, we're seeing, I mean, like I would say, you, I'd see, I'd see these archives that would be like bought for, you know, a million dollars or, you know, some atrocious amount of money. And then I'd like, I'd look at what there, what was in the archive. And one was like a zine that was sold for 25 cents back in the night. Like <laughs> right. exactly. How does this market articulation work? Um, right. So, I mean, there's a ton of stuff out there. Um, I, I, and I, I applaud as you do anybody who does the right thing, which is to put their archives into a public, um, uh, you know, or, or even if it's a private university, one that provides access to right. researchers, because I think there's an awful lot of stuff that probably you and I missed um, that's sure. out there um, that, that, that would be really a benefit to have, um, you know, made available to, to people. Yeah. So I think, I, I think we're supposed to kind of wrap this down since there's not a supervisor overlooking us or anything like that, I, it's, it's <laughs> right. our own judgment. Um, but I think making it like making it the length it is at this point in time is, um, is, is pretty safe to say, did you, did you have any, did you want to have, say anything in closing? Um, no, I think your listeners uh, from the bookstore should go buy your book. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, and, th and thank you to you guys for sponsoring this. It's it's been actually a total blast to be able to talk talk with Mike about this and and share our thoughts about about researching punk and the meaning of punk and all that sort of stuff. So um, again, I got to do the selfish plug. Um, uh, here's the book. Uh, We're not here to entertain. Um, and uh, 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 again, thank you, Toilet Books, for um, setting this up and. Um, I'll stop the recording at this point in time. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.